Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. Welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets. This is your fair dues warning. Fair dues, this subject may be unsuitable for delicate or very young ears. We're talking about the history of women's football and there might be some swearing involved. So fair dues, you have been warned. Football or soccer, depending on where in the world you're listening to this. Well, you can say what you want about it, but it's just definitely quite unsuitable for us delicate females, wouldn't you agree? No. Well, the Football Association thought it was when they issued a ban on women's football in 1921, which stayed in place for 50 years. 50 years! It wasn't repealed until 1971. It wasn't that women didn't want to play football, they couldn't play professional football. Here in England, we are celebrating the success of our women's football team, the Lionesses, at the Euros. The first time an England team has ever won at the European Football Championships. It's all over! England, European champions, for the very first time! So on the back of that, we are looking into the history of the so-called beautiful game. We'll be going back to the factory girls of World War One, meeting some of the early stars and, well, finding out how it all became so political. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. On the 31st of July 2022, England's women's football team won the Euros against our old rivals, Germany. Side note, did you know that 2022 is actually 20 years since Bend It Like Beckham first came out? I don't know if that means something, but it feels like it should. But as recently as 1971, women were not allowed to play professional football. Banned. Couldn't do it. Today I'm joined by Suzanne Rack, The Guardian's women's football correspondent and the first person to hold that position at a national newspaper, by the way, to talk about the rise, fall and rise again of women's football from the late 19th century to now. Find out why Nettie Honeyball, what a name, Nettie Honeyball was such a legend and hear about groundbreaking moments which changed the game for women's football forever. Enjoy! 
So hello and thank you so much to Susie Rack for joining me betwixt the sheets. Thanks for having me. Should be fun. I feel like I should start by going, ole, 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 ole. <laughs> that is an intro. I want that every time I do any podcast now, I think. <laughs> that would be like your Darth Vader theme music. I've got my son's drum kit behind me and every time I do Football Weekly of The Guardian, like the guys on it are going, oh, come on, play us out, play us out. And I was like, I don't play. It's my son's. <laughs> I love that. Oh, so you must be so in demand at the moment to talk about women's football. Just a bit, just a bit. Just a smidge, yeah, just a little yeah. bit. There are a lot of requests for like the day after the final and I was like, God, I bet. I'm not replying to any of these. I'm, I'm what, A, I'm still working. So I had like requests saying, oh, can you um, come in the studio this time or can you jump on this radio show at this time? I was like, I'm, I'm at Trafalgar Square speaking to the players and then writing up three articles. I like, no, and then I need a rest. <laughs> so yeah, I've had to like put my foot down oh. a few times, but um, but you know, it's, it's good. Like it's great, isn't it? Like this, the interest is sky high and it's good that people want to talk about it and stuff and I, I like coming on things and chatting about the women's game and the growth of it and the euros and what's happened and all that kind of stuff because it's really like exciting and enjoyable to be a part of it and it's great to talk about it I'm so pleased that you've come here to speak to me <laughs> today because this it feels like something's different it's not just because they won the, the Euros, the um, also for people that aren't in the UK and haven't been caught up with this, the England women's football team won the, the European Cup and everyone's lost their shit completely, haven't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, I even bought a bucket hat. Where is it? Here it is. Look. <laughs> um, you know, never worn a bucket hat in my life. And I've got an England bucket hat made out of an old England shirt. We've lost the plot. Exactly. Yeah, completely. <laughs> It feels like something's different, though, this time. And I don't, is it the media coverage or is it like... What I'm going to talk about is the history of this. Women have been playing football for a long time. But what do you think is shifting now? It feels like there's more energy, more focus, more... I don't know, what do you think? I feel like it's a culmination of things coming together at exactly the right time. Like, timing is everything. Mm. And we're at a period of time where people are switching on to women's sport, but also just, like people in general not just women men as well but the importance of having a good relationship mm. with your body that women have been like sort of grossly let down in that area for such a long time how all of the benefits health wise yes. but also mentally education wise in the boardroom to being a part of team sports like the, all of those things are sort of on the side of women's sport at the moment and then you've got like you know in society more generally you've had the me too movement the big protests over you know the death of sarah everard and things like that and there's a real change in attitudes towards women in society generally and also women not just accepting mm. sort of what we're given you know the equal pay gap and yeah. things like that there's a lot all of that so it happening the England women's team winning the Euros like within the context of all of this and then that the FA have also been investing and the FA Women's Super League the Barclays Women's Super League is professional one of the most invested in leagues around the world like a lot of big clubs are invested in it. Lots of big brands are sort of jumping on board. It's like all of those things coming together at this perfect moment in time. And then this team, like, achieves something that the men have been trying to do for 50-odd years. And finally, it's done. <laughs> uh, and football is brought home. But it's not by the men, it's by the women. And I think you can't underestimate just how powerful the impact of that is. And that it's, you know, that all of that coming together and then that happening is 
not just going to impact the growth of women's football and women's sport, but also just the way people look at women in society generally as well, I think. Definitely. I'm so excited for them. Like, honestly, now I know fuck all about football. It's, it's like, it's bad. But I think that's one of the things that's so appealing about it, actually, is it, apart from the offside rule, which can take a little bit of explaining, it is quite simple. This group of people are trying to kick the ball there and that group of people are trying to kick it that way is it's quite a simple sport which makes it so appealing but it is an old sport as well isn't it what are some of the oldest records that we've got of what we would call football today or soccer yeah totally i mean one of the things that i think is like it's almost been made to be viewed as like too complicated for women to want to get involved in actually the offside rule if you have a woman explain it to you you'll understand it a lot quicker than if any man tries to explain it to you you know like it's actually you know not okay. not that complicated but just a few props and it's you're good to go and it's actually quite a logical thing like even things like that like we're made to feel like we don't belong in that space and that's one of the ways they do it is like make something feel too complicated for us hmm. for our little brains to comprehend but yeah i mean it's such a rich history <laughs> a little lady brain exactly yeah such a rich history to women's football so when I was writing my book which is sort of like a general political social history of women's football I didn't realize how far I would go back for it you know I I knew that there was this woman called Nettie Honeyball which was a pseudonym in the late 1800s early 1900s and I knew that there were teams in the 1920s as well it's the best name in the world it's brilliant and I knew they existed, but I didn't realise that it actually went back even further than that, that you could trace it, like, all the way back to, like, the earliest examples of men kicking balls with their feet, which, you know, wasn't necessarily, you know, wasn't, like, association rules football, football as we know it today, but, like, the first examples of people playing with football sort of thing, which were sort of present in the Han Dynasty in China. And at that time, that was quite a big thing and a big sport. And there's evidence to suggest that women did that as well and were involved in that at that time and were spectators of it and enjoyed it. And it's like very limited evidence. But the fact that there is any when there's so little evidence of women playing football throughout the years, like suggests that this wasn't a totally alien concept. And then the first examples of like women's football in the form that we'd recognise it today is the late 1800s when Nettie Honeyball founded the British Ladies Football Club and played a North v South game in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And they were playing for like a few years and then that slowly died off. And it was very much a political thing for them to be doing. So she was really explicit. She was a suffragette, like she was real, real into campaigning for equality for women generally, big advocate of the right of women to wear trousers and whatever clothes they wanted. And she saw football as a tool for like changing attitudes in society generally. Very, very explicitly in interviews, she says that. And so that was like really interesting for me because I didn't realise it was being used like that. Where did she come from? So she came from London and it's sort of like a little unknown as to who exactly she was and I've got there's a theory in the book of to who she might have been but like a few people have you know kind of different opinions on who exactly was the person behind Mm. the pseudonym oh that wasn't a real name Nettie Honeyball no no that's yeah yeah it's a pseudonym it's been attributed to a few different people and basically yeah set up this team that you know, went on and played some games and they got some crowds. And I mean, they were, you know, kind of chased off the pitch at points by like vicious mobs of, of men, male fans. Really? Wow. Who, you know, kind of got a little bit tanked up and riled up by the, their existence. But then at other games, you know, they got quite a lot of support and interest and were a bit of a novelty and yeah, played for a long time. And then the biggest boom was in the sort of 1920s during the war. Nettie Honeyball, this just incredible woman 
sort of just lands in the British consciousness with the, the most amazing name ever. What do we know about her? Like, do we know, and like, the name's a pseudonym, but like, do we know anything concrete about who she was? No, very, very little. Like, there's various speculations. So there's a few people that she could have been. That you know, there's a woman who put the advert in the paper, which was Nettie Honeyball asking for players to join. But it, the address is an address in London with a different name on it, whose name escaped me at the moment. But it could have been her. But it also that could have also just been someone she knew because there was this family that mm. helped, helped set up the team based in London. And we think that was the home of that family. And then we like there's also theories that it, the name was adopted by a couple of different people later on as well. Ah. Uh. Like an I am Spartacus moment. Yeah, sort of that. You know, when there was a bit of a split in the team and, you know, second team was set up and they sort of both had a Nettie Hannibal type character. But the original, like, all these fantastic interviews in the press where they're really, really political, really like football is the biggest sport in the country. It's a tool for us to raise issues of suffrage. She's a suffragette. Exactly, yeah. We can we can campaign for equality and equity through football wow and you know for the right for women to wear the clothes they want and that kind of stuff through football which like i wasn't expecting to stumble across that history i was just sort of expecting to stumble across some women that wanted to play football i wasn't expecting already at that stage for people to be thinking about it in those terms obviously i think she quite liked football and liked sport that's sort of evident Mm. from some of the interviews she did but that was sort of the start of things and then it the football died off uh, like a bit women's football for a number of years and sort of the early 20th century was that so the the fa banned women's football in 1921 when it was reaching a peak well that'd do it yeah prior to that and and one of the things i found in the book was when i was researching was that there was possibly a ban earlier than that as well so i like it, it it was just hinted at in a couple of articles and things and really need to get into the the football museum's archives which was very difficult during lockdown to like properly scour the fa council minutes from like the late 1800s early 1900s but there's evidence to suggest that there may have been a ban much much sooner and that's possibly why it sort of died down at that time but then so then i think that ban just gets forgotten about and women's football really explodes during the war because you've got all these men going out to fight women filling into the factories yeah and then factory teams growing so what happened was you had football sort of being encouraged at that point because it you know in the same way that men's teams were formed out of factories so were women's because it was good for morale and it was good Mm. to like have a healthy workforce so women playing football particularly in a wartime was seen as a good thing so you had all these factory teams spring up and then there were actually tens of thousands of people because there was no men's football being played because the war was raging going to watch women's football and it was really really growing and it was outside the fa's control the real sort of developing beast it peaked in the in i think it was 1920 um there were 53,000 at Goodison Park, Everton's ground. Wow. To watch, oh, my Yeah, to goodness. watch Dick Kerr Ladies, which was the biggest team of the time, play their like, local rivals, St. Helens. It's reported that there was like another sort of 15,000, 16,000 outside trying to get in without tickets. And that was sort of a bit of a turning point because it was almost a year later, exactly, that the FA banned women's football. 
And the way it did it was it banned them from playing on FA-affiliated football grounds. So clubs couldn't host their games and they couldn't use FA-approved oh. referees. So it wasn't like an outright... They couldn't stop women just from playing football, but they forced it into like parks and rugby league pitches that were very small and athletics tracks and killed those huge crowds they were getting. And the reason oh is God. twofold. So on the one hand, you had this like sort of ideological shift in society towards old women, right? This is 1921, so like the war is over and the men are coming back and the women are being forced back into the homes and there's a bit of a more generalised setback for women's rights at that time. So playing football is not like the done thing anymore and not seen as the right thing. So you've got the FA rolling out doctors saying it's unsuitable for women to be playing sports. You know, they're wounds will fall out and that kind of ridiculous stuff and (laughs) constant hazard exactly yeah Uh, walk down the street in constant fear (laughs) what's that in my shoe oh it's fallen out again oh thank god i wasn't playing football (laughs) there was that side of it where they were like on a little bit of a ideological offensive against it and against women playing sport and it was time for them to go back into the home and then on the other side when they were playing and they were being playing to these huge crowds of tens of thousands they've been raising money for charity so they while the war was going on and in the sort of short time period afterwards they were raising money a lot of the time for like war wounded and military hospitals but once the war was over they were like right where should we donate our money next and a lot of them were you know like say factory girls they were from like little working class communities towns and villages up in the north in a lot of cases so the biggest next cause was the striking miners donating to support the like financially struggling striking miners and their families and that was a politicization of the money that scared the establishment and the football association there was this money outside their control it was now being used politically for causes that they didn't support they didn't have control over it was growing uncontrollably and they were worried that it would a continue along that route but also impact the men's game and that it was taking money away from the men's game and stuff so those were like the two reasons combining to lead to this ban in 1921 that lasted for close to 50 years that's wild, isn't it? That it wasn't repealed until the 70s. Yeah. Which is like, like I watched a Columbo episode on Sunday from the 70s. It's like, it's really recent. It is so recent. It's that embarrassing. Like, it's embarrassing just to say it like, until the 1970s, women couldn't play professional football. Yeah. The 70s. And there wasn't any, you know, there was unofficial attempts to form England teams and things like that that would go and compete abroad and stuff, but they weren't supported by the FA. They were unofficial even the official teams that were set up after the ban was lifted have struggled to get recognition for the role they played in the very, very first official England teams. So it's only literally during the Euros that it was announced that the very first team of, that was formed in the late 60s, early 70s are going to get actual caps for their time as players. Whereas previously the FA had said, no, we're not doing it, it was a different time, you know, we can't do this for various reasons and had refused to sort of recognise that achievement in that way. And it's only during the Euros that they've gone beyond words of just like, oh, these were the pioneers to actually, we are going to formally recognise the amount of appearances you have in an England shirt in an official capacity. (laughs) Never mind the teams that were playing before that unofficially. (laughs) There's just a lot to sit with. Women had the vote Mm. before they were allowed to play football (laughs) professionally in this country. Yeah, I mean, like, it is that mad, isn't it? And, like, even then, even when the FA lifted the ban, they still weren't supportive of it. And they were sort of forced to do it as well. Like, it was a lot of pressure from UEFA, from the European governing body, saying that, like, 
federations must adopt it. And it was very much like, or, and take it under their wings. And it was very much a sort of just strategic move more than anything. It was a like, this is growing again. We need to control it from the off. Like we can't let it grow beyond its means. We need to get our arm around it and take ownership of what they're doing in case it grows too big and outside of our control. So it was very much like a power play. It wasn't like, oh, we suddenly believe that women's football should be allowed to be played. It was like a form of control. And it wasn't until... So it was 1993 that the FA actually took over the running of women's football because the women's FA had been set up in the late 60s and that was like a part of putting pressure on the FA to recognise the game. And the women's FA continued to run it alongside sort of FA assistants until 1993. And then the FA take over in 1993. But even then, they don't do a huge amount to invest in it. Minor sort of things. And it's not really until like literally within the last sort of 10 years that you actually get a real I would say like ideological switch within the FA that says we need to be doing something about women's football and writing this wrong and I, I think back to 2017 there was a meeting like a press conference at Wembley with the FA and they were launching this strategy their game plan for growth for women's football and Martin Glenn was the chief executive at the time he got up and he apologized for the ban on women's football and that was the first time a representative of the FA had apologised for the 50-year ban on women's football in 2017 after it was lifted in the 70s and said that this was a wrong and we needed to right it and that kind of stuff. And, you know, now we're trying to do something to right that wrong. And it's literally taken that long to reach a point where we're just at a point where they are going, we owe the women's game something. (laughs) And since then, you've seen this huge investment and the game plan for growth had all these ambitious targets, which they've met in three years, which was like to double participation, double attendances, get to win a major tournament by the Euros we've just had or the World Cup next year. They were targets they set in 2017 and they pretty much hit every single one and they relaunched the game plan for growth. They basically have you know upped all those targets and improved the ambitions and like you know talking about the pathway for England players and all that kind of stuff but it's really really new really really recent really 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 modern that you've got a really engaged FA in the growth of women's football we've reached half time go back to the locker room get yourself some oranges stretch Get back in the game. Sorry, I couldn't resist any of that. But join me and Suzanne Rack for the second half after this short break. Move over Rome, move over Greece. This month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas. North, Meso and South. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas, every Sunday this August on The Ancients, from History Hit. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm thrilled to say that today's episode of Betwixt the Sheets is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses with us, and I'm no exception. It can be a whole range of things that weigh on us big and small, such as, can I justify these elaborate impulse purchases? How do I tell my friend that, no, they really shouldn't have cut that fringe? And of course, the evergreen classic, why are we all here? Bottling these things up can really take its toll, which is why therapy is fantastic for getting them off your chest and working through them with an expert. Even if it's just to tell your mate that their hair doesn't look its best. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is built to be convenient to you, being entirely online and flexible to suit your schedule. Simply fill out a questionnaire to be matched with a therapist and you can change at any time with no additional cost. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash betwixt to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash betwixt. But without investment and rep, and it becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because you know, I remember growing up, and I did want to play football, and I was told flatly, like you can't because you're a girl. And I remember having conversations with people about women's football, women's sport, and it was there was always this subtext that they were kind of just having a go at it, or that it wasn't like the proper sport, or like you know, I've even heard people say, "Oh no, like proper football," when they mean men's football. And I think that like. Well, maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong, but it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because you never see the representation. You're not used to seeing it. It's not there. It's weird when you do see it. So therefore, people react to it hostily. They don't want to see it. And I feel like what shifted with the media coverage of the Women's World Cup this time is it was kind of everywhere in a positive light. And it was like, you know, that was kind of different. Yeah, like, I definitely think that's true. I was lucky. I was really, really lucky because I grew up in Hoxton in Hackney. And when I was like four or five, Arsenal ladies, as they were then known, trained in the park opposite me for a bit, leafleted my council estate, the players did, saying, we're training here, come and watch. My dad used to trot across the road with me and my dad, like a big socialist and feminist, and we'd sit and watch Arsenal ladies train and play. So I had that visibility from a young age. When we went to watch the like Arsenal double winning parade for the men's team in 98, the women's team were on the bus behind the men with their trophies as well. Like there was a wow. presence there, not as big yeah, a presence yeah. because, you know, I couldn't watch the games very easily or anything like that. But I knew that it existed and that there were players and I had no idea whether they were professional or not. Like I was a little kid beyond my yeah, like knowledge, but, but they, they were there. there. Exactly. And like, I suppose... It's the same for me in that, like, I loved football as a child. Like, lo- obviously, I still do. I l- was obsessed. And I played, I was the only girl to play in uh, my primary school with the boys. And I loved it. And there was a point at which I remember just feeling like, I'm supposed to grow out of this now. I don't want to, but I'm supposed to. And it's oh, like that point wow. at which, you know, back then there were only boys fit shirts. You know, they didn't have women's fits yes, or girls fits. it's like fits. all those little subtle 
messages. And then suddenly, like when I hit sort of puberty, they don't fit the same way. And oh, my hips are slightly too big and I've got breasts now. And these shirts, like I'm supposed to grow out of this and I'm supposed to grow up. And this is just like a pastime that oh that was sort of tolerated while I was a little kid, but now, you know, shouldn't, you know, it's not something you should be doing. And I feel like that's like, there's so many different ways mm. that we're told to not be involved in things and not something's not normal it. not right. And it's right down to those little tiny, like, nuances of, you know, you being the only person playing of your gender or the kit not being quite right or you being worried about putting on white shorts in your period and things like that like that just make you feel like this space isn't designed for you to be in and yeah I think that has changed these euros have like completely transformed that I mean it's been changing over time but I feel like this is like um, a qualitative moment you know you have had this quantitative like shift and then this has been like a real qualitative huge change that has really like switched the way people think and you know like you my I've got a a little half brother and little half sister Holly and Jack and they are either side in age of my son which is kind of fun they all get along really well but Holly is 10 and her and her best mate went to the England Northern Ireland game down in Southampton she has been to I think one Arsenal women's game before like sort of last season I think it was when they played at the Emirates and she enjoyed that but this was a different level um, and she was there with her girlfriend not with her you know her brother and things like that who it was you know you're sort of almost going for him this was her going with her friends they made a banner it had the name of every single player on it and said come on England oh. she's 10 and she absolutely loved it she was buzzing afterwards she was so engaged with that but then also my son was at the opening game at Old Trafford and the final Wembley and like he is a nine-year-old boy and he is what like his experience of football is watching women win and women be successful and women be powerful and like that's just like a real impactful change on a younger generation that we're we're probably not even going to see until you know a couple of decades down the line but I think there is that shift is taking place in society like that is happening to teenagers and it's happening to people in their 20s and their 30s and it's happening to people even older than that who never would have thought of a woman playing football being okay but you've got you know old men walking towards Wembley Way like just groups of them like in their 50s 60s whatever in their England shirts like their men's England shirts walking towards the grounds with you know the Harry Kane on their back and that kind of thing to watch England women play in a major international final and that is just beyond anything I could have ever imagined That's from this huge. tournament like I just could not have envisaged it to seep into general consciousness as much as it did which I think that, that's what's been impressive so yeah the media coverage has been great I mean our coverage at the Guardian like was just blew my mind like I was genuinely like really quite emotional at the end as to how deep our coverage went and how sincere it was like for example mm. the so the day after the final there were like 35 36 pieces of content that went up and I wrote like two or three of those and previously it was just me and then you've got people on news writing about it people in opinion writing about it people in reviews writing about it people in different sections of the paper Mm. all writing about women's football and arranging interviews with players from you know the first team and things like that and I didn't even know about them until I picked up the paper and I was like it's captured people in a way that I could never have imagined like internally as much as it has externally amongst the public and like so I think the media coverage has been really important but it's just 
there's been something about the journey of this team through this tournament that mm. shifted things. Because I think, like, before the tournament, I was like, how deep is this going to go? Because, like, I walk into Sainsbury's and I see Leah Williamson's face on the, you know, the scanners that you walk past yes. <laughs> um, that tell you if you've stolen something. You know, her face on those. on, And I'm walking past those and I know who she is. I guarantee 99% of the people walking through those barriers did not register that was there. So, like, like there mm. was this real, like, yes, there was a presence of the tournament, but it hadn't really seeped in. I don't think people knew who those players were or anything like that or had even registered that as being there. And then during the tournament, that changed. Like, as they went on, the way the performances went and things, that sort of shifted and it started to seep much more into general consciousness in a way that I could never have, like, envisaged it doing which was just incredible to be amongst and feel the vibe of, I suppose. Vibe is a good word for it, because it definitely felt like that was different. And I'm really interested in what you said about how it was a very political thing and always has been. I suppose that makes perfect sense, because in order to play football, they would have to get out of the corsets and the crinoline and the high-heeled shoes, and that was quite controversial. They have to push back against the idea that, that women their wombs might fall out if they, you know, or like they could damage their femininity or any of the other mad stuff that was going around and just pushing back constantly about this idea of what it means to be a woman and facing a lot of ridicule as well. I've got a quote here from an 1895 and it's a review of a woman's football match and it runs thus. Imagine I'm saying it in a very plummy English accent. I won't try it. The first few minutes were sufficient to show that football by women, if the British ladies be taken as a criterion, is totally out of the question. A footballer requires speed, judgment, skill and pluck. Not one of these four qualities was apparent on Saturday. For the most part, the ladies wandered aimlessly over the field at an ungraceful jog trot. And that's the thing, like, that is poor journalism, right? Because that is removing all context yeah. from the existence of that game and, and what it means. And that's, a, like, the biggest problem I have nowadays with coverage of women's football and also just the way it exists within society is that the context of it is really lost so the biggest arguments you hear is like oh the goalkeepers are rubbish or it's not technically as good it's not as fast it's not as good to watch as the men's and it's like well hang on a second what is the context of this sport right like you've got say I was going to say a Lionel Messi or a a Cristiano Ronaldo but just pick any even like bottom tier Premier League player or championship player even they have been groomed for elite football from like the age of seven or eight they have been in academies that have like glistening facilities they've been plucked out of the parks at like sometimes even as young as like four or five and they're molded in these academies given the most incredible educational like advantages that probably way beyond their means otherwise like had elite level coaching from that kind of age have like the best equipment the best clothing and football boots and things like that and then have been like pushed to succeed and be the best like throughout from that age all the way through to potentially making it as a professional player and you look at the women's players and a huge number of those players that lifted that Euros trophy have at some point worked alongside playing football like there's some uh, the newer generation a small handful of players in that team the younger ones that won't have to do that that won't have to work alongside mm. playing football but they've not had that elite level academy environment from a yeah. young age they've had some basic academy environment from quite a young age 
but that's the newest of the new players. You know, Lucy Bronze working in Domino's Pizza, Jill Scott working a million different jobs to make ends meet while playing, like scraping together, like reliant on their partners, all that kind of stuff. There was that ridiculous tweet a couple of years ago that got deleted, wasn't it, about, well done to our lionesses, today they go home to be mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, but today there are, oh, whatever yeah. shit it was, and then and everyone could just hear this inhale of breath of just everyone, so many women around the world, world just going... You fucking what? <laughs> exactly. It's just a complete and utter joke that that just would not happen nowadays. That tweet just would no. not g- gone out. And like that shows a shift in things too. Like it just would not happen. And like that is a big sign of change. And like that context is so lost. And you just think, well, you know, actually women's football has the potential to be, uh, no one's arguing it's the same game. No one's arguing it's as te- it's technically as good or as fast or whatever as the men's game. Like it's a different game. They've got different physicalities. They will develop in different ways in the same way that women's tennis, you know, the serves aren't as powerful in women's tennis, but that doesn't mean it's not as good to watch or as entertaining. It's I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of one of Serena Williams' backhands, <laughs> to be completely honest. Completely. But, you know... There's no standing there going, oh, but she's no. a woman. But it's developed in a different way, right? Definitely. They are more agile. They have to move around the court a lot quicker to compensate for those things. And so the game develops in a different way that is just as entertaining and just mm. as fun. And if anything, the women's game has the potential to also do that to, because to make up for the physicality, women have to be technically better, like with the ball at their feet, and be able to get out of tight situations and that kind of stuff. And the best technical players played with boys when they were kids. You know, you look at like the, I'm thinking of like the Gemma Davison as this world. She constantly talks about having to trick her way around boys because she wasn't big enough or strong enough. And she is like such a technically gifted footballer and also such a long time. And the game has a potential to develop in that way a lot. But often the thing that gets lost is that context, that like this is the reason why the game is at the stage it's at. So just watch it and enjoy it for what it is. You can go and watch like non-league men's football in the park down the road and you're not having a problem with what you're watching you you know you you don't just watch Ronaldo and Messi you're happy to watch that kind of level of football because you understand the context of it and what you're watching and you enjoy it because it is football and you like it is people passionate and having fun and sweating and like trying to win and they're the things that people enjoy watching what is it that is different about women's football that means that you cannot enjoy elite level women's football in the same way that you enjoy say park football and it is significantly better and more enjoyable somebody put up a tweet i can't remember who it was but it was along the lines of like if you absolutely love football if you really really love football but you only enjoy men playing the football then maybe the problem isn't the game exactly you know that it's it's and it is a real blatant sexism Mm. the fact that the women's teams are so underinvested the fact that they don't make that even close to the same amount of money they don't have the same facilities they don't have anything they're still winning tournaments they've sort of done it despite that haven't they not because of investment tell me a little bit about what kind of activism women's football have been involved in because i think that it's still very political especially around things like sexuality and equal rights and things like that i think that's still very much at the fore of it today yeah there's like different levels of political activism with women's football because like obviously just in and of itself playing football is a like a rebellion against social norms Mm. and stuff like it can be completely unconscious it can literally just be a person like a woman who wants to play football going and playing football because she wants to play football but that in and of itself is an act of rebellion and a statement and pushing Mm. back against the patriarchy and what is expected of them they may consider themselves completely non-political which 
I disagree with as an idea anyway because everyone is political and we're just made to feel disassociated from politics. But, like, they could consider themselves completely non-political, but just the very act of playing sport as a woman is a political act. But then you've obviously got, you know, women's football, because it's been so hard for people to play and so difficult for women to play, like, there's been so many battles that have had to be waged that have forced a level of activism beyond what many players, I think, would necessarily have ever thought of themselves Mm. as turning to. So, you know, obviously you've got the US women's national team is the brilliant example in their, like, massive fight for equal pay that they've won. And, you know, they're just one of a long list of of national teams that have fought back against all kind of manner of things. You know, the Ireland women's national team having to get changed in, like, airport toilets and stuff. And, you know, wearing kits of the men's team and the Nigerian women's national team not being paid their bonuses after competing at the World Cup and all that kind of stuff. Have a sit-in protest. And then there's, like, all those kind of forms of protest. And then you've got the fact that women's football is a very open and safe space for people to be in, partly Mm. because playing football is a overtly political act even if you're not political so is watching it in a way like you get a more progressive yes. fan base because they haven't got all those other hang-ups that and that sort of ingrained like deep-seated idol misogyny that is somehow holding them back mm. from watching what is actually a very enjoyable sport to watch so you've already got like a more active like captive fan base and then yeah like is you know a great place to be and there's a lot of openly out gay players like obviously significantly more than the men's game that's not hard because there's barely any Mm. but you know that are that have reached a point where they don't even come out anymore they don't need to they just sort of you know go public in their relationships you know they don't have to announce it you know you look at Viviana Miedema and Beth Mead you know they both play for Arsenal one plays the Dutch national women's team the other is England's hero this summer uh, top scorer golden ball winner and you know they're both in relationships with other players Lisa Evans at Arsenal and Daniel van der Donk at Beth Mead was in a relationship with the Netherlands as well. And, you know, they split up with those partners, you know, within the last year. And in this tournament, there's photos of Viviana Miedema at games in a Beth Mead shirt, you know, not trying to hide, not trying to mask her relationship or her sexuality or anything like that. Just being there as a fan supporting her girlfriend days after she's been knocked out of the tournament herself in an England shirt and then you know pictures of them with a trophy wow. afterwards and things like that and there's no there's no moment there's no moment where Viviana Miedema announced that she was gay there's no moment where Beth Mead has announced that she was gay they just are they just exist and they be and like no one picks up on it negatively like no one is homophobic about it i mean i'm sure there are some Mm. trolls online that are but like overwhelmingly it's a really like safe embracing like place to be and that's like a really nice aspect of women's football is that it is still a really welcoming environment and there is this ethos within it that allows women to just you know be whoever they are to a certain extent and you know you've got players that are out you've got players that aren't out coming out isn't even really a thing anymore, which is what, for me, is the nicest part. It's not like they have to do a big announcement anymore. They just exist in relationships. It's so true. I I see that in the students that I teach all the time. It's like that's how much the understanding around sexuality and normalisation and inclusion has done already. You can see it coming through. Uh, An example I read recently, remember when Rebel Wilson had to disclose a sexuality for some newspaper was going to run the story? The students I was talking to about it were genuinely perplexed about why that was a story. 
Like they didn't, mm. they couldn't un- get their head around that. Well, why would somebody need to print that? Like it's, why would you blackmail somebody? And I was like, my God, wow. That is a new generation. It's just to them, it's not even like, I mean, you know, not everyone, you can't generalise, but there's, I've noticed that as well of just, you don't need to announce it. You just kind of are. And I, I'm, no. It's not newsworthy, is it? They're just footballers. They have families. They have relationships. And that's just what it is. And I think that's part of the problem with men's football, isn't it? It's like, it's become such a thing. There must be gay players. And they need to come out. And they need to announce it. Find the gay players. Exactly. And, like, there's so much pressure on players that do, you know, kind of step forward. And, obviously, we've had the first two do that in Australia and here. Very, very young players do it. And feel, you know, really embraced and welcomed. But it's like headline hitting they're going to get abuse they clearly feel so much more happier in themselves but they really have to like embrace the idea that they are going to be judged in the context of their sexuality and everything they do right like that is the reality for any men's player that comes out and that just doesn't exist in women's football and like you know often people talk about oh you know oh yeah we want women's game to become like the men's game become as big and as commercially successful as men's football and blah blah blah. and like I hate that narrative because there's so much that men's football could learn from women's football and one of them is the sort of type of space it creates and the responsibility it feels to create a safe space as well like football's a very very powerful tool right like you ask some people in some countries around the world who they trust more their football team or their government and they're going to say their football team right like clubs (laughs) are incredibly powerful and they've got huge ability to influence the thoughts and feelings of their fan bases and they don't use that and I think that women's football does use that a little bit more not a huge extent more but it does use Mm. its power to push progressive causes to a certain extent and players do recognize their role in helping develop society and that it is a powerful tool and that they can use it and that's the legacy of the way that women's football has been built sort of running through their veins in that way and then you know very much a recognition you lee williamson great interview on the radio yesterday where they have one of the first england players on the phone with her and leah is saying you know i'm standing on your shoulders without you i wouldn't be here and it's like very very moving interview and like that Mm. recognition at like an identification with everyone that's come before in growing this wonderful game is still there it's still very much embedded in the players today and that like in turn leads to these players feeling like they have a responsibility to use this game for good and to improve things for women and girls and the relationships they have with their bodies and their right to play sport and you know all of the impacts of that in different areas of their lives in a way that you don't have in the men's game and that yeah huge lesson that the men's game could learn from the women's is like that adopting that kind of attitude (laughs) towards the role that it can play in society and the environment that it can be supportive of and all of that kind of stuff oh Susie you have you have been incredible to talk to but I I don't think I can take it to (laughs) extra time already but I'm gonna keep going you've probably inspired me I'm just like yeah I'm gonna be there at the matches and I want to know more about it and it's so important but if people want to know more about you and your work where can they find you so I write for the Guardian so obviously all over the Guardian and regularly in print and articles most days and things like that I've got a book out a women's game 
which is like a sort of social political history of women's football, which is a lot of what we've ended up talking about. And and yeah, I'm on, on Twitter, so at Susie Rack, um, and people can. I'm like quite engaging. I like to dip into arguments and like debates and stuff. So yeah, people can always come and find me there for a chat. But yeah. Thank you so much. You have been an absolute treat to talk to. No, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. And thank you so much to Suzanne for joining me and sharing your knowledge and research and passion for the beautiful game. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe. Honestly, write us a review. It really helps the podcast. We've got loads of other great episodes out for you to listen to, including one on bras, one on Rasputin, one on sex robots. So please do check them all out. I'll see you next time. This podcast included music by Epidemic Sound. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 